Well, we're still in Genesis. I guess you're not surprised. We've made it to chapter 3 in only, what, six weeks? That's pretty good. Uh, you know, everything that we're having trouble with today, in our world today, began in Genesis chapter 3. A lot of people say, well, why does God allow this? And why does God allow that? And why this and why that? Everything is answered in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Everything after that is just uh, the, the, the end of the story. It really isn't the beginning, and this is the beginning. The word Genesis means in the beginning, uh, as it's translated. Uh, in, in, in the beginning is the actual definition of the word. Now, when chapter 1 finished, God said that his creation was very good. And when chapter 2 got midway through it, the only thing that was not good was Adam without Eve. And yet by the end of chapter 2, Eve was there, they were married, everything was well. And you would think, well, now everything's going to go well from now on. But evil is lurking somewhere. We don't know when, we don't know why, we don't know what caused this to happen, but we know a little bit about Satan, but somewhere in the process of Genesis 1 to chapter 3 to Genesis Genesis 1-1 to Genesis chapter 3, something happened. Uh, now, no one really knows the details of it, but we do get some insight from Scripture. So we see Genesis chapter... Oh, I can use this now, can I, if I have it turned on properly? Yeah, it says, Now the serpent, and the Hebrew word is nakash, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. The Hebrew word for nakash means a shining or an upright creature. It's not really picturing a slithering snake down in the dust. Some argue that this creature had arms and legs once, and the context almost demands it by the way God curses the serpent to crawl on his belly. It's almost as if he'd never crawled on his belly before. And we'll see in the next sermon that he'll lose those uh, appendages and will crawl on his belly from, from then on. Uh, it tends to make sense to do that interpretation. We don't know if this serpent that was in that tree was anything like what we call a snake today or not. I've heard people picture it more like a large salamander. And uh, I don't know, a very multi-colored salamander that uh, somehow had the ability to communicate to Eve. I, I think it's very surprising that Eve uh, was not surprised that this, this beast was talking to her. We do know a little bit about the serpent, and I wanted to share just a brief overview of that. You know, while if, if I were walking in this garden, now, now Eve is new to the whole scenes, as is Adam. We don't know how many days have passed. We don't know if she's been there two days, two years, or 20 years. I mean, there's just so much we don't know, but... Uh, if I'm walking in the woods and I see this beautiful, large salamander sitting in a tree, I, I would be very curious and interested, but when it started talking to me, I have to admit it would freak me out a good bit. And, and the fact that Eve is, is just engaged in conversation, really, we just don't know. I, I, I look forward to meeting her and finding out just, just how that was. You know, uh, We do know from Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9 that this is that old serpent, the devil, that behind the scenes of whatever she's talking to or, or, or whatever this creature is that she's talking to, behind the scenes is Satan himself. And we don't know why he's there, and we don't know when he fell. Uh, Luke chapter 8 and verse 33 tells us that demons can in fact inhabit 
uh, animals. So we know that they had the capability. And it's entirely possible that there was no conversation at all. I know when Satan speaks to me, I don't hear a voice. If I heard a voice, I'd probably run out the room. When he speaks to me, it's more like a subtle suggestion in, in my mind. And it's entirely possible that's all he faced here was a conversation in our own mind. But again, we don't know. But we know this about Satan. Isaiah tells us uh, that the cause of Satan's fall was pride. God hates pride, and this is the reason God hates pride. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of interesting that this is Pride Month. Uh, and uh, we have actually celebrated God's worst sin uh, of pride by made, naming a whole month after it, you know. And uh, Satan had five I wills, which will parallel to Ezekiel. I'm in, I'm in Isaiah chapter 14, but I'll, I'll skip to Ezekiel 28. Uh, you can almost remember him that way, 14 and 28. I will ascend into heaven. And, you know, I think to myself, wait a minute. Now, first of all, you have to understand that as I'm sharing this information with you, this comes from Isaiah thousands of years after the event that we're studying today. So it's going to be easy to get confused. Satan apparently has lost some of his access to heaven. And his goal now is to ascend back to where he was in the beginning. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Stars of God is often a reference of the angels. And it sounds like his goal is to take over all of the angelic realm. Now we believe from scripture that one third of the angels followed him when he fell. But I'm thinking he's talking about the other two thirds here. I will also sit in the mount of the congregation, which you'll see from Ezekiel in just a minute. Seems to be, as I read it, a reference to the, 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 the area where the throne of God is in heaven, the mountain of God. It'll be a reference in Ezekiel, the mount of the congregation. I don't think he's talking about this congregation. I think he's talking about that congregation. Okay, I will ascend to the mountain of the congregation, the place where God's throne exists. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. The sin that he tempts Eve with two, 3,000 years earlier is the same sin that caused him to fell. In Ezekiel, now, Ezekiel, when you're reading it, it's not quite as clear as Isaiah because he's talking about the king of Tyre. First he's talking about the prince of Tyre, and then he's talking about the king of Tyre. I'm in Ezekiel chapter 28. And this is God speaking to the, the demonic force behind the king, if you will, or the prince of Tyre, uh, a world power at that time. Uh, Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and beauty. So this is really... God speaking through Ezekiel to Satan and is saying, you were full of wisdom and you're full of beauty, which is one of the reasons that pride came in. He looked at himself in the mirror and he thought, wow, I really am great, you know. Uh, Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. So we know we're not talking about the king of Tyre here because the king of Tyre wasn't even a twinkle in daddy's eye in the garden of Eden. Uh, thou art the anointed cherub. Uh, cherub, you know, we think of these fat little kids in diapers. That's not a cherub. A cherub is a mighty angel of God. There are actually only three. And he was the anointed cherub that covered. He was the covering cherub. He was the highest general in God's army. That's what Ezekiel tells us. Um, if I could back up a little bit, thou hast been in the garden of God. That verse goes on and it says, let me back that up so you're not confused. That verse goes on to say, every precious stone was thy covering. So you get this idea of multicolored. 
And, and, and you know, I'm thinking of this uh, salamander sitting in a tree, all right? So you get this idea of multicolored. He was a beautiful. And it says, uh, the workmanship of thy pipes was prepared in the day that that was created. Uh, people connect these phrases with music. And uh, I remember my pastor in Memphis said that Satan was the choir leader. Uh, this recent guy that I'm reading said it's entirely possible he was the covering angel. And in so doing, he was responsible for the defense of heaven itself. Uh, thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. He was the covering Arab. And Ezekiel goes on quoting God now as saying, I have set thee so. Uh, there are two others, Gabriel and Michael. Ma Gabriel, we know, is the enunciator. Anytime something needs to be announced, Gabriel shows up and makes the announcement, or at least as we read it in the scriptures, that's what we normally hear. And Michael is the defender of God's people, so he's sort of like the warring angel, but nothing like Michael the angel that you see on the movie. Not Nothing like, is that John Travolta? Yes. Nothing like John Travolta. I, I have to think that even the mention of that causes Gabriel to grind his teeth. Uh, Satan's job may have been to guard against spiritual attack, but the problem was he was lifted up in pride and he got to thinking, hey, I can do this myself. I don't need God. Oh, how often have we thought that? I can do this myself. I don't need God. That was upon the mountain of God. There's that same reference to that mountain that you see in Isaiah uh, that, that, that kind of implies that it's a reference to where God's actual throne is. It's not specific, though. Let me turn my page because I may have some notes on that. Oh. That was perfect in thy ways in the day that that was created. Okay, so we know this isn't a born king. This is a created being until iniquity. The twisted nature that sin causes to remain in us. So when we talk about I am in iniquity, that's the result of sin. It leaves me in a twisted nature. That was perfect in thy ways in the day that that was created until iniquity was found in thee. Did I turn too many pages here? Yes. So in verse 1, we're introduced to this malignant creature, once trusted as God's greatest king, uh, now turned against God, apparently, and seeking to replace God, even in the throne room himself, and become a king himself. And I, I don't know what he was thinking, and I don't want to criticize him because I don't want him mad at me the week before my vacation starts. you know. But we go back to verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any creature of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree in the garden. Now, the fact that Eve doesn't seem a bit surprised that this serpent is talking to her is a little unsettling for me. But as I said previously, everything was new to her, and she sort of takes this in stride. Maybe he was speaking to her heart and she couldn't hear him. Maybe he spoke to her audibly. Maybe, I've heard people speculate that all the animals could talk at that time. And uh, Adam could have a conversation with him. Uh, well, I don't know. That's pretty speculative. Notice, too, that when he approaches her, he does not come as a hideous monster. There's something about sin that it always presents itself as pleasant and desirable. And we need to take note of that. You know, somebody said, if it looks too good to be true, it probably is. If it looks too good to be true, it probably is. Who wouldn't want to talk to a beautiful, multicolored creature sitting in a tree? Who wouldn't want to talk to him? Who would have seen the threat in this? The only threat that you would have perceived in this entire situation was the fact that he was sitting in the wrong tree. All right, He's in the wrong place. 
That should be the warning for her. He waited till Eve was alone, always waiting for the right moment to attack. You know, Joseph was attacked by Potiphar's wife when they were alone. The boys decided to sell him into slavery when they were away from the father. When we're sick, we're alone, we're depressed, we're under attack. In Eve's case, just wandering around the garden alone, we have to remember to use caution because that's when sin will strike when we least expect it. Notice too in this verse, the avenue of of attack against Eve is against the word of God. Yea, did God really say, questioning God's word? He's used many variations along that same theme, but it'll always come back to the same. Did God really say that? You know, I hold in my hands, actually my Bible's in my backpack. I hold in my backpack a Bible that people say the collection of speculations by different tribes and their tribal tribal, uh, legends over many, many years. And that's what's being taught to our kids today. You can't trust the Bible. It's inconsistent. Where's that coming from? Genesis chapter 3 goes all the way back to that point in time. Now you'll notice he didn't outright call God a liar. Because had he outright called God a liar, it would have signaled something in Eve's mind and she would have said, I'm out of here, Jack. I'm not staying around. Instead, what he does, yea, hath God said, he reinterprets God's reason for the commandment. He not only questions what God was saying, but more importantly, he's turning to ask her, why did God say this? What was his motive? Why is he keeping this good thing from you? And the woman responds to the servant, and he says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Now, she left out every, all, except for that one. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Now, she gives him a simple answer, and there was really nothing wrong with that. It was almost completely correct. She actually got everything almost right. She omitted every tree, but this one, she, she, she was... And, and he kind of, you can tell he's got her confused. And now he leads her towards the trap because he set the trap door on her. Well, if we can eat of all these trees, this is implied. What's wrong with this tree? What's, what's wrong with this one tree? It looks good to me. It looks all right. Whereas she might have been content with all those other trees for food. The issue here is not food. The issue here is why did God say what he said? There's a reason that people want to take the Ten Commandments down from buildings in our country. She's thinking, what's the big deal? What's the big deal here? Now, we don't know everything God said to Adam. And we certainly don't know what Adam said to Eve. So we don't know if her response is accurate or inaccurate. But it looks to me as I read that, that Eve added something. God said, don't eat of this tree. Eve seems to have added, don't even touch it. Now, I say Eve added that. It's entirely possible Adam added that, you know. I mean, it's possible that she was looking at it, and he said, God said, this is the one tree we can't eat of. And she goes, oh, and he might have said, and don't even touch it. So I don't know if she got that directly from, she got that directly from Adam or she got that, made it up in her own mind. But Satan is on a roll here. I want you to see how quickly the human race fell into sin. There's two people in the world, and there's one commandment, right? 
No, not ten commandments. There's just one rule they had to follow. Don't eat of this tree. Leave this tree alone. Everything be fine. You're, you have dominion over the, all the animals, all the plant life. The whole world is yours. Take it. You're in control of it. We're going to put you in charge of it. And I'm going to trust you to take care of everything. They were the boss. They were the kings. Of the, they, were, they were the top of God's creation. Everything was theirs. And yet now we've already had two things happen. We have, first of all, the birth of legalism. Don't touch it. Where man adds rules to what God had said. And we have before that the birth of, li- of liberalism where man questions, yea, did God say? So you have both. We're in Genesis 3. We're just two pages into the book. And we've already got the birth of legalism and the birth of liberalism. And now we're going to see the birth of the occult. And the servant said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes will be opened. And ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now this is an outright denial. I wish he'd have started with that because Eve would have walked away, you see. But now Satan is giving birth to cultism, calling God a liar. And only this serpent knows the real truth. No, you have it wrong. I understand it better than you understand it. And now he whose very nature cannot lie, it's impossible for God to lie, is slandered by this beast who's turned against it. And truth, for the first time, is redefined. You know, you think, where do they come up with this idea in school where they teach that truth is relative? It's your truth and my truth. It's your morals and my morals. It's not that. It's truth or lie. It's moral or immoral. Simple as that. How is it defined by God in the Scriptures? That's the definition. How does He have a right to do that? Genesis chapter 1, He created it. That gives Him the right, you understand. That's His right of authorship of everything that we do. But now truth is redefined. And now, Eve gets to decide. We get to decide. Now, our children, immature, get to decide truth from a lie. We get to vote on it. They get a choice. And they're moving in the direction now where our children have authority over the parent in making that decision for themselves of what is true and what is not true for them. And you think, how far can we go down this pit to get away from the truth of God? Now Stephen Cole adds here, Satan is smuggling in another dangerous assumption here. And it is the assumption, hear this, that we don't need to obey God unless we understand why He made the rule. Now when you say that, you know, it would be, Mom, why? Smack, because I said so. You know, because I said so. Uh, but now it's not like that anymore. See, now it's, you have to give me a good reason or I'm not under any obligation to, to, to listen to you. Whenever people explain away or attempt to reinterpret God's clear commandments as not applying to us, red lights should be going off. If God says no, it's no. We don't need an explanation. I mean, it, it, I think it's fun sometimes to try to figure out why he made this rule or that rule. I think it's interesting. But it certainly doesn't change any responsibility I have to obey him or that we have. 
there is a tiny bit of truth that Satan is using here to try to get Eve to swallow a gigantic lie. It's true that her eyes would be opened and she will know good and evil. The lie is that they'll be, she'll be like God. Now, some of your translations will have, as you see up on the screen here, the King James has gods with a little g there, gods, plural. That's actually the same word for God in chapter 1 and chapter 2, Elohim. And I, I don't think, I, I really would prefer that that be a capital G. You shall be as God, singular, knowing good and evil. But it is, it is a plural word because we spoke about that in chapter 1. Uh, well, the problem is she already knows good. All she's ever known is good. But she's never known evil. If you think to yourself, there's no restriction on the good that God's willing to bestow on you. Now I want to know some evil. You think, are you kidding? How stupid can you be? Along with that molecule of truth is encapsulated this gigantic lie that you will be as gods. You'll be like Elohim. Certainly desirable from her standpoint. Satan has a sucker on the line now. All he has to do is set the hook. Sad as it sounds. Eve likes God. God with a capital G. She would love to be like him. Now she thinks she has a reason to desire the forbidden fruit. Now just like, just like any good car salesman, a car salesman gets you to think that you want this thing. And then he leaves it up to you to rationalize all the reasons why you should have it. That's exactly what Satan's doing here. He shows her a reason to desire this fruit. And then he just steps back and lets her think about, why would I want this fruit? Why? How would I pay for it? How long will this car last me? The woman saw that the tree was good for food, edible, pleasant to the eyes. It's good looking fruit. A tree desired to be made, desired to make one wise. Actually, I will be like Elohim. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat. And I'm assuming later gave it to her husband who was with her. And he did also eat. Now there are people that argue, no, he was with her the whole time. I kind of think he came up at the last minute. I don't think he was with her the whole time. I think he'd have smacked her on the back of the head, or at least I hope he would have. Uh, I think it was a done deal when he came on the scene and he gave her also to her husband. And she did eat. Take a note here. It's always the good things that trip us up. John tells us it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Good for food, lust of the flesh. Good, pleasant to the eyes, lust of the eyes, desirable to make one wise. Lust of pride, the pride of life. Remember, sin does not show its bad side until after we take the first bite. On the front end, it always looks good. It always tastes good. It's always desirable. And then we find out the truth. But when we find out the truth, it's too late. That's the way sin is. It's always been that way. You know, I, I was a smoker. I actually got to a point where when I quit, I was closing in on three packs a day. And I, I've often thought if they had wrapped cigarettes instead of in this nice white paper, if they'd have wrapped it in dried tissue from cancerous lungs, it would have made me think twice about uh, starting. But I thought I would look so grown up. I thought it was cool. I was in the sixth grade when I started smoking. Can you imagine that? I was 25 when I quit. 
Had I known the horror and guilt and pain of an unwanted pregnancy, I would have thought twice about a relationship I had with a young woman. But I wanted what I wanted, and I didn't think about the harm it would cause. After all, who would know? Who would care? Who would it hurt? I didn't realize then, but I do now. It would hurt everyone. It hurts everyone. If only a deranged alcoholic worked in, in beer joints, if, if they were actually suffering from DTs when they were selling me that beer, I probably wouldn't have started drinking. But I didn't realize the danger of alcohol until I saw my father die of a heart attack while he was in DTs. It's a terrible way to die. I, I, I have to imagine alcohol's killed more people in this country than anything up until the drug epidemic came along. And, you know, along the ways, I had, I had terrible temper tantrums. I, I came from a rageaholic grandfather and a, 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 a closet rageaholic father. Uh, he just drank himself to where he only lost his temper now and then. But when he did, it was always at me. At least I felt that way. My sister thinks I'm just a big baby. If I had known that my temper tantrums would permanently score my children, I might have grown up a little sooner. But I didn't know. People tried to tell me, but I wasn't listening. Now, the question is, as I go through this, this is my life. Are you listening? How sin wiggles its way into your life. And given the opportunity, it destroys your life. And if it wasn't for the Lord Jesus Christ, I'd be dead right now. I have every confidence that I would not have survived to reach 30 or 35 years of age had it not been for the Lord Jesus Christ. He broke these addictions in my life. You know, I said earlier, Adam and Eve were had dominion after this they're under dominion they're under the dominion of sin sin always looks good always tastes good always feels good but sin always demands a payment there's a famous old southern baptist preacher who did a sermon payday some someday and i'd really like to get a video of him and, and run it here he does a great job of it he alliterates every word and wow what a sermon. We watched him do it live at Tennessee Temple one time. Were you there for that? Were you in the audience that time? Yeah, because we were both at school at the same time. What was his name? R.G. Lee. R.G. Lee. And that, was that the last time he did that publicly? It was pretty close, wasn't it? Yeah, that was, it'd be an interesting video to run here sometime. Sin is patient. It'll wait a long time, but it always has a payday. All the while, the interest is piling up. Every day we're deeper and deeper in debt. One day, someday, always, those debts fall due. You can't get away with it. You know, I was thinking about Rob years ago. This is, this is actually an illustration out of an old sermon in 2003. And we were out fishing one day and Rob caught a northern pike. Big northern pike. And I remember when he hauled it in, the fish looked so surprised. I mean, it's like... What happened? He's got more oxygen than he knows what to do with, you know. And it, it, that hook, oftentimes Rob and I will just unhook them and let them go. Uh, we'll be, you know, we do it for fun. I'm sure it's not too much fun for the fish. We do it for fun. But this guy, he had no hope. He was hooked so badly. He'd seen the lure go by and it looked good. It was desirable, you know. And he was thinking about those other fish around. He thought, I better grab that lure before or that that dinner swimming by before the others grab it, you know. He didn't wait. He took the bait. And Rob knocked it in the head and I cut his head off. And I barbecued him the next day. And from my perspective, he looked good. He tasted good. And the fish oil was desirable to make me healthy, you know. I know I sound callous, but that fish was stupid. Don't be stupid. 
That fish was stupid. And now he's dead. Rob trolling that lure was that friend. Right? Leading him to sin. Baiting the hook. It's only after you're hooked that you discover what an ugly, mean, and despicable person my son Rob is when it comes to fishing. So go ahead and drink that beer. Smoke that cigarette. Run with that sexy, wonderful, good-looking person. Because, hey, it's good for food. Good to look at, too. It's desirable. And don't think about it. The debt that's coming due. Verse 7 says, The eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Now God said, When the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And Satan said, Well, you're not going to die. And they're not dead yet. They're not physically dead yet. They'll go 900 or so years before they physically die. But immediately, looking at one another and recognizing their condition, their relationship to each other is awkward and embarrassing. Immediately, whatever they had before the fall changed. Their relationship to God changed. We're going to see that in the next sermon because they're now going to be hiding in the bushes, afraid to be in the presence of God. Whereas in the old days, they would run to His presence. Their freedom in the garden is going to be gone. They're going to be kicked out. And now, instead of being in dominion, they're enslaved to sin. Now Satan's in dominion. Now they're dominated. Soon they'll die to life in the garden. They'll be kicked out. And the garden will be gone. They'll watch as their firstborn son dies at the hands of their secondborn or they're twins. Some people argue Cain and Abel were twins. They'll watch as their bodies slowly die. It'll take them eight or nine hundred years, but they'll watch the decay set in from the beginning, and they'll know the mistake that they made. Now, Genesis, as I said at the beginning, says it means in the beginning. That's what the word means. And oh, what a beautiful beginning it was up until chapter 3 and verse 1. But this book that begins in Genesis chapter 1, 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, ends with a coffin in a grave in Egypt. And that tells you a lot about what happened. We can't blame God for this. We can blame the tempter for tricking Eve. We can blame all the bad choices that our ancestors have made. We can blame, you know, everyone else until we get to the end of the line when we have to look in the mirror and blame ourselves because we too, just like Eve, chose to sin. Now this is from Stephen Cole that I wanted to share with you. A strategy for victory over temptation. He said, first of all, we must be aware of any new twist of doctrine or practice. Since Satan uses deceptions and lies, we need to be cautious about any new doctrine or practice. The world proclaims self-esteem. And the church is glutted with books on how to accept and love ourselves, even when our lives are filled with sin. The world extols tolerance as the chief virtue. And the church is quick to tolerate every form of perversion under the banner of grace. We must beware 
of any change in doctrine. Secondly, he says, we must affirm in our own lives the authority of God's word. Satan always works to undermine the authority of God. If you take away the authority of the word, you're launched on a sea of moral relativism with no rudder. That's where we're at today. We are incapable of knowing the correct direction. But even if we accepted someone else's definition of what the correct direction is to go in, we have no capacity or ability to turn in that direction. We have lost our rudder. We are at the last verse of the first chapter of the book of Romans, and we are absolutely without hope. Third, we must affirm God's character as revealed in his word. Satan will try through our trials, our disappointments, to get us to doubt God's goodness or his sovereignty. And it's a short step from doubting his goodness and his sovereignty to get to rebellion. Because if you can't trust God because he's not good or he's not in control, you're not going to be able to trust him. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers and thrown in a prison in Egypt because he resisted Potiphar's wife. He could have easily doubted the goodness or the sovereignty of God. But years later, he told his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Fourth, we must affirm the reality of God's judgment. That's that sermon, payday someday. <laughs> you cannot get away with sin any more than you can take fire into your shirt and not get burned. That's Proverbs 6. The fact that judgment is not immediate does not mean that it is not certain. Grace does not eliminate the principle of sowing and reaping. Whatsoever you shall sow, that shall ye also reap. And finally, we must remember that sin gives fleeting pleasure but results in pain. I would like to say results in lasting pain, which far outweighs the pleasure. What a somber thought. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this reminder of the result of sin in our lives. Father, we apologize for all those times that we've said you don't care or you're not watching or it doesn't matter. Because we realize now, Father, every one of those statements is a rationalization of a lie that was told 10,000 years ago to Eve. Lord, forgive us from our sins and help us to do better. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.